podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the episode 132, incredibly. And uh, I'm Dave Hendon, Michael McMullen, back with me once again. And uh, this week, we're going to be building the perfect Stuga player. It's sort of a Frankenstein episode. So, and we're going to start with this. Well, I'll explain how it works in a moment. We're going to start with this and see how long it takes. And then we've had a lot of emails. We've had more emails this week than ever before. So we may not be able to get through them all, but we'll try and get through as many as possible. I'm delighted to say uh, James Cook is back from, well, not back from America, but we've heard from him. Um, we've also got uh, the mystery of Billy Snadden's involvement in popular culture solved. Um, so there's big stuff uh, to get through. We've had another Scooby-Doo story sent to us. So all the big issues in the snooker world are going to be covered uh, over the course of the next hour or so. Um, so let's get on with the main topic, though, because uh, we've obviously done top 10 players before, but this is a bit different. The idea is to look at a different aspect of what makes a snooker player and pick one player to represent each aspect. So, for example, potting, who's the best potter, who's the best safety player, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here's the thing. It has to be a different player for each category. So it can only be one player for each category. Otherwise, you could just say, well, I'll have Stephen Hendry or I'll have Ronnie, John Higgins, whatever, for all of them. So it's got to be different players for each one. So I'll just read out the list of categories. We've got potting, break building, safety play, temperament, technique, overall tactics, rest play, entertainment, professionalism, and legacy. And I'll explain what that means when we get to it. We're going to pick a player each. It's all good fun. And of course, you can send us your own uh, ideas for players yourselves. So I'll start, shall I? So uh, we'll, number one is potting. Obviously, some great potters down the years. You think of Mark Williams, Ronnie, of course, uh, Neil Robertson, and going back like Perry Manns. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. he's always he's always said, "Oh, we never fifty break when we masters," but he's a fantastic potter. But and this, I suppose, is a bit predictable in a way. But it's my honest opinion. I think the best is Judd Trump. Yeah, and and I agree. And uh, do you know what really makes him stand out? You know, you think of someone like Jimmy White. I don't know whether you mentioned him there or not, but yeah. you, you think back to 30 years ago and the shots that he was playing, you know, amazing pots with fantastic sort of positional aspects to them as well. But when you look back, actually, most of the shots we remember were in sort of dead situations where the frame was no longer at stake. The difference between that and what Judd does now, he takes on shots like that when the frame is still very much live. And not only that, the percentage of them that he gets when he's playing well is remarkably high. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you talk about Mark Williams, brilliant potting under pressure, the key balls, Neil Robertson, a wonderful long potter as well. But, yeah, I think if you're going to put Judd Trump in a category, if you can take one aspect of his game, it would have to be his potting. And it's just getting better and better as time goes by. OK, well, that was all solved uh, very easily. Um, <laughs> Only nine more to go. So number two, you can start with this, break building. Well, it's very hard to go against the player who's made more century breaks than anyone else in the history of the game. It's someone, obviously, you could put in a number of categories here, but this really is his strength, isn't it, Ronnie O'Sullivan? I mean, I always talk back uh, about that 92 break he made against Ali Carter in one of their world finals. It was the most ridiculous break I've ever seen. You would have thought when he came to the table, if he makes it 20, and then play safe, he'll probably have done quite well. Stephen Hendry, of course, you know, was such a prolific century maker as well. And there are many others still at the top of the game who are so prolific. But, I mean, O'Sullivan just stands out you know, from the rest of them so much. And it's just wonderful to watch him when he's really in among the balls. You can almost see his brain ticking over, working out impossible situations. And the position he makes big breaks from 
you know, it, it's just unparalleled in the history of the game. So several categories you could put them in there. But, it, you know, I suppose what you're looking for here is what is each player's particular forte? What can they bring that more than any other player? So from the break building point of view, I've gone for O'Sullivan. Yeah, and we're not going to agree on every category, I'm sure. But again, we will agree on this one because I think this is probably the only category where actually you have statistical information to back mm. up your case. The fact is he's made more centuries than anyone else, a lot more. And you're absolutely right. The way, I mean, actually, as, as we record this, last night he made a century last frame against mm. Jamie O'Neill in the Northern Ireland Open. And again, it, it was the way he unlocked the frame. You could sort of, and it, so quickly as well, his mind was ticking over, working out the positions, but he did it so instinctively so quickly it's sort of like a chess grandmaster the only difference is i was thinking about this actually because i was watching this the queen's gambit this new thing on netflix which is really really good about this young girl who's a chess sort of genius but here's the difference okay and obviously you've got to be mega intelligent and and you know to play chess but here's the difference okay you can know the right move in chess yes all you've got to do is move the piece with your hands right in snooker you can know the right move, but you've actually got to execute the shot properly. You're not picking the ball up and putting it somewhere. You've got to play it. Ronnie can do that right and left-handed. He can do it really quickly. And he, let's be honest, he can do it better than anyone else. And I, I, I defy anyone, actually, to put anyone else in this category. Ronnie O'Sullivan, number one in break building. Let's see if we agree on this one then. So number three, safety play. Now, there's been a lot of great safety players over the years. Steve Davis would be a major a contender. More recently, maybe Mark Selby. I've gone for someone who actually straddles the two eras. It's a bit of an obvious choice, I guess. But John John Higgins, I just think Higgins is a, is a genius uh, tactical player. He always knows the right shot to play. He might not actually, like I said about, you know, actually executing the shot. Might not always actually execute it, but he knows what it is. And what I think he's really good at, Higgins, is doing nothing in a frame, going about 50 behind, not looking like he's going to do anything, suddenly engineering a position where he traps the player with a good snooker or a good safety shot, then pounces and wins it. Wouldn't it be amazing if we agreed on every category? Because it's three (laughs) out of three so far. You know, you look back to the last category and we talked about O'Sullivan and his break building. And, you know, to the untrained eye looking at it, you would think it was dead easy watching O'Sullivan do it. Well, in a similar sort of way, it's actually the same with Higgins. I always wonder this about really good players. Obviously, you can learn about break building and potting and technique. But I always wonder, do they learn safety or is it just something that they develop over years through playing? And I've never really got a, a good answer to it. Higgins looks like someone who never needed to learn safety because it looks like he was sort of born to play it. And you say he always knows the right shot to play. It very rarely takes him any significant length of time to figure out what the right shot to play is. He just seems to instinctively know gets down and plays it. And the thing is, he was doing that right from the start of his professional career. We always go back to 1995 when he played Steve Davis in the final of the International Open. Steve was considered the greatest safety player at the time. He was still ranked number two in the world. Higgins beat him, not by outpotting him, not by outscoring him, but by actually outlasting him in the tactical exchanges. And it was really, really absorbing to watch. And it's a bit of a cliche to refer back to that, but it's so relevant as well that even at that age, he was such an amazing tactician and it looks like it always came so naturally to him. One thing I would say, I think he's really slipped in this category the last couple of years. And I think he's played some big matches in recent times when actually his safety has been quite sloppy and has let him down. But even, you know, you would you would expect he'll probably re- recover that because particularly as players get older, they rely more and more on their safety game. But even if he doesn't, the way he's been able to rely on his safety game 
and to build the rest of his game around it for basically a quarter of a century now means, yeah, he's got to be the pick in this category. Well, at the 2018 Welsh Open, which I guess is the last ranking event Higgins won, I commentated on one of, one of his matches with Ronnie O'Sullivan for Eurosport, and Ronnie said Higgins was playing shots he just couldn't see himself. He said some of the safety shots he was playing, he, he was sort of purring at the, the, the genius of it. So, yeah, uh, OK, well, I hope we don't agree on them all, because otherwise this is a one. We won't. We definitely won't. <laughs> OK, well, you go next, number four, Temperament. Well, we might agree on this one, actually, because I've gone for, well, we've had two of the class of 92 in the last two categories. Let's have the other one here, Mark Williams. I mean, I've never met anyone like Mark in any walk of life. He's just so unbelievably, I was going to say philosophical, but that that almost makes it sound like he thinks about things. and, And he doesn't. And I mean, that as a compliment. It's his great strength. He just gets up every day, lives his life enjoys what he's doing, whether it's time with his family, playing golf more and more, uh, or playing snooker and playing it so well for the best part of 30 years now. Just the temperament he has and the laid-back approach, I think it's almost reflected in his technique and the way he floats the balls into the pockets. He just looks so incredibly relaxed, and I've never, ever seen anyone in any walk of life go about things in the manner that he does, and it's served him so, so well at times over the years. We talked about the fact that his potting stands out so much over the years, and particularly when he's been, you know, at the absolute peak of his game. Obviously, a lot of that is down to technique, but a huge amount of it as well is down to the temperament that he has, that he's able to produce at the times when it matters most without letting this situation get to him. So, I mean, if you could bottle Mark Williams' temperament, if you could bottle half of Mark Williams' temperament, you could sell it for a million dollars. So I have to pick him in that category. Well, (laughs) here we go. First things first, uh, if you've got those headphones, I think plug them in because the, getting a bit of feedback, which I think is my voice coming out of your speakers. So if you have them, plug them in. Meantime, yeah, I mean, I've gone for Mark Williams for all the reasons you, you've explained. He is a one-off. I think, like, with it, I think like with everybody, it comes down to your upbringing. And Mark was from a very humble background in South Wales. You know, his dad was a miner. They didn't have a lot. Obviously, the mines were being closed down at the time. Um and this was his way out. He tried boxing and he was reasonably successful as a junior boxer until one last fight sort of, uh, I think, persuaded him to to follow snooker. And I think he's always sort of carried that that gratitude with him. And it really is that. Well, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I win or lose. Of course, it does deep down. And he's very competitive, but he manages to convince himself it kind of doesn't. Um, he is a one off. Yeah, absolutely. And and allied with obviously, his, you know, he's potting and his break building and all the rest of it is why he's been so successful but his general temperament in matches you know he just looks laid back that's the thing even if he mm. even even if he wasn't if you were playing him you'd think this guy doesn't care <laughs> and that must make him difficult to play definitely so well so far so far four out of four and i fear the next one i don't know what your choice is but for technique what we're talking about here is, is q action and just generally you know looking at a player and thinking well you know, they, they basically have got it all. And I did consider Neil Robertson in this category very strongly. Mm. But but the man I've gone for is Sean Murphy. I just think he's got an absolute... <laughs> I have a horrible feeling you might be the same. But absolute sort of gun barrel straightness in his cue action. Um, didn't fare too well against Ryan Day last night, but Ryan played superbly. But just you just look at him, you think, yeah, this, this is how you play snooker. If you're going to sit someone down... OK, Ronnie O'Sullivan, yes, but he, we've used him in another category. But Sean, I think, just looks... He looks a million dollars when he plays. Yeah, I'm afraid it's five out of five because <laughs> I've gone from Murphy as well. Yeah, I mean, I just echo everything you say there. And 
you look at him and you think, okay, he's had an amazing career. He's, you know, probably certainly in the top 15, let's say, of all time. Certainly, you know, maybe not quite the top 10, but just outside it. But you look at him and you think, how has he not had an even better career? Now, then you watch him over time and you see there are reasons for it. Maybe his tactical game isn't quite as good as others. Um, maybe his shot selection at times lets him down a little bit. And maybe at times he just doesn't have quite that killer instinct that you need to, to finish off big matches. I think we've seen that cost him a few times. But look, he still had a fantastic career. As you would say, Dave, he's a triple crown winner. Um, <laughs> I think he's still the second youngest world champion ever, isn't he? Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I absolutely have to uh, to go for him. And someone was saying this to me recently. I was talking to a couple of lads, other sports journalists, actually. And uh, they both like snooker. And we were talking about this. Who's got the best technique? And I said, oh, definitely Sean Murphy. And they were saying, well, then how can you have the best technique and not be the best player? And, you know, surely if your cue action is, is the best, then you'd be the number one player and, and you'd be winning everything. But, of course, there's a lot more to it than that. It is difficult to explain. It's a bit like Stephen Lee, someone we talked about in uh, much less positive tones on a recent <laughs> podcast. Uh, I mean, he had an absolutely incredible technique and cue action. It, it just looked, you know, completely uh, unbeatable. But again, in other aspects of the game, uh, he fell down. So, uh, yeah, it's it's five out of five now. This is this is interesting. I, I always think this is a bit like when you see these talent shows like Strictly Come Dancing. And, you know, if, if you see someone hold up a seven and you were only going to hold up a four uh, or the other way around, it's almost like oh, maybe I should change this now because I don't want to look like I'm I don't know what I'm talking about. But it, it's interesting that having not spoken about this at all, mm. you know, the two judges in this, i.e. you and me, have gone for the, the same people in the first five categories. So it almost suggests like we know a bit about the game, Dave. Well, I don't know about that. I see you yeah. as a, I see you as kind of uh, I don't know whether you're like the Craig uh, of Strictly Come Dancing or or I don't know. Uh, um, yeah, I, I see myself as a sort of Len Goodman, very much steering the ship. Um, very old and, school. And in, yeah, and indeed being got rid of for being too old. Anyway, mm. um, well, let's see. Uh, I mean, this you, this could be termed a complete washout. But anyway, we'll we'll continue. Uh, well, and, but before you go on, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm going to stick my neck out here and say there is absolutely no way we will both have picked the same player for the next category. Okay. Well, the next category, I'll just explain it. It's tactics. Now, this is not the same as safety play. This is overall kind of. I suppose it, it's allied a little bit to temperament. Going into a match, I guess with a game plan, really. Going into a match with a strategy, depending on who you're playing. You're not just playing the balls. Um, you may be thinking more widely about that. And for me, the man who does that better than anyone, and bearing in mind, back in the day, there were some, there were some fierce competitors, the likes of Cliff Thorburn, Dennis Taylor, Terry Griffiths, these sort of people. But in the modern era, and I think he would have competed well with these guys, is Mark Selby. I think Mark Selby, you know, you ask Ronnie O'Sullivan, you ask a few other players... He is someone who can get his, sink his teeth into a match, but it starts before that. I think he does think about who he's playing. I think he thinks about how he's going to play because he can play different sorts of snooker. He can go in and attack. We saw that against Dave Gilbert in the English Open final last year, just completely you know, outscored him. It was, was absolutely superb. He can go into a match and mess people about if he needs to. And I, I think Mark does think about these things. So for me, uh, tactics is Mark Selby, but I'm intrigued as to who you're going to pick. I've picked Stephen Hendry. Interesting. Yeah. And let me explain why. You talk there about Mark Selby having a, a game plan for different opponents, and I absolutely agree with that. Stephen Hendry had a game plan that he used no matter who he was playing, and it gave him so much success. And I actually spoke to him about this. I often refer to this interview I did with him uh, early last year, which seems like so long ago now, but it was very wide ranging. And the reason I think he gets my pick in this category is he has such a positive approach to the game. 
you look at so many players and you think they get held back and bogged down by their complete reluctance and fear almost of losing a frame. Stephen had no fear of losing a frame. He understood the bigger picture of a match and that if he played a certain way, we know how attacking it was. We know how positive it was. He was the first player really to go into frames thinking it's all about getting in and winning it in that first chance. And he was aware that that wasn't always going to work out, but it was going to work out more times than not. And during his heyday, it did. So you might look at it and say, how can you possibly pick Stephen Hendry as the best tactical player? But I spoke to you about this before and how you wanted to define the category. And you said it's not about safety play because I mean, Stephen Hendry himself jokes about it all the time. He was no in, had no interest in safety play. Obviously, he had to play some of it. But I just think his overall approach, his game plan, his positivity, his fearlessness and his acceptance of the fact that losing a frame was just an occupational hazard. I think that gives him the, the, the nod in this category for me. And that, I think, is why he was so successful uh, in the World Championship and the UK Championship in his heyday. Because if you're going to take that approach that losing frames doesn't matter, put it behind you, go on, take the same approach, you'll win more frames than you lose. That's obviously going to be more effective over the longer matches than the shorter ones where you can get caught out. So for me, I just think that approach and that strategy that he took was a massive, massive part of the success that he had. And, you know, again, you could put him in so many other categories. He'd be second in the break building category for me. But I just think if you were trying to put together the perfect snooker player, if you could go in with the mindset that Stephen Hendry had and his approach to the game and how he saw the game and how he changed the way other people see the game, that's why yeah, I've picked him in that category. Well, spoiler alert, Stephen does appear on my list later on. Yes. Um, not in this next category. Well, you go, you go first this time. So rest play, this is as it sounds. It's, uh, you know... The rest is, and the various rests, bridge rest, as Dominic would call the spider and all the others, yeah. they, are, they are an important part of the game. Sometimes, of course, when a player reaches for, for one, it's because they played a bad shot, actually. But it's a way of recovering the position. Some players have really struggled with the rest. Some players, I mean, Matthew Stevens does everything he can not to use it. Mm. But there have been a lot of players who have been identified as, as being particularly good with it. Who would be your choice? Well, I don't think he's the best rest player we've ever seen. There'll be a few ahead of him in that category, but I felt they fitted better into other categories. Uh, someone who's very much a contemporary player, very much at the top of the game now, and almost won the World Championship earlier this year, is Kyron Wilson. He's absolutely magnificent at it. And it's unusual, really, because a lot of the time it's the shorter players who are good with the rest. You think of Jimmy White, who's, I don't know, what is he, 5'7", five, 5'8", five, something like that. So he had to use the rest a lot. And, of course, the fact that he was playing when he was so young and so small and could barely reach the table. He honed his skills with the rest at an early age. Kyron, I think he's actually quite tall. So you wouldn't maybe expect him to be the, the player to... Uh, to get the nod in that category. But he's so consistent with it. And you see him in some matches. He doesn't miss a single ball with the rest. And there was one match, I think it was at the Champion of Champions a season or two ago, where the frame was well and truly mm. won. He had the rest out. I think he needed it to play maybe the brown. And then just decided, nice bit of showboating, just something a bit different, to just keep it out to pot the blue, the pink and the black. And he got them all as far as I remember, even though there was no need to do it with the rest. And it was a little bit of showing off, but I quite liked it actually. A little bit of swagger about him. So, like I say, I think there have been better rest players. I think there are arguably one or two better rest players in the game now. But just because those players are perhaps in other categories, I think Kyron fits uh, quite neatly into that one. Well, I've gone for Jimmy White. Um, yeah. I think for the reasons you've, you've given, he, he, you know, he, he had to use it, obviously, when he was young and was very proficient with it. But also, I don't know, he kind of, the rest is not a sexy piece of equipment, is it? But Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy kind of, he was such an exciting player that he even made like playing with the rest quite exciting, I think. 
and and he was good with it and you know that's it really i think i think he if 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 you were sort of looking at the span of snooker history who were the great players with the rest he'd be right up there i agree karen's great i think sean murphy actually Dominic was saying he thinks Barry Hawkins might be the best of them all. But anyway, for me, it's Jimmy. We move on. Of course, he could have... I mean, I'm nearly put him in the next category, um, which is entertainment, which is, you know, eye-catching snooker, exciting snooker. Obviously, Ronnie could have got in this category. Jug could have gone in it, but they're in other categories. Go on. Well, actually, you go first on this one. Yeah, well, I have put Jimmy in this one and that's the only reason I didn't pick him for a rest play because I do think he's a better rest player or certainly was in his prime than Kyron is now but I wanted to put in the entertainment category he was just fantastic to watch back in the day I I'm struggling to think of a player I've enjoyed watching more in his prime and you know you think of him as a 1980s player actually Jimmy's best days were in the early years of the 1990s when he got to all those world finals and there were so many events he won the world match play a couple of times he won the world masters I remember him playing great to win the mercantile one of the times he won that when he was at his best, he was absolutely magnificent and just so wonderful to watch. The shots he played that we alluded to earlier, the style in which he did it, the little bit of swagger he had around the table. I think even, you know, just when he had the slightly longer hair back at the start of the 1990s, it almost added to the whole vibe of it all. And, you know, people talk about people's champions and that, and, you know, the few players have been given that title over the years. Jimmy's the one who deserves it the most because he's always given the people that wonderful entertainment. And he's very genuine, actually, in, you know, his love for his fans and the support he's had over the years and still does have, you know, when you see him playing on the big occasions, as indeed we, we do occasionally. We saw him the other week playing in another big tournament. So, yeah, Jimmy was great to watch, wasn't he, in the early 90s? And, um, you know, I think when he's, when he's still playing well now, He's still great to watch. There was a match he had against Watanagh maybe last season or the season before where, you know, he really was evoking those old times. And you remember the way he used to sort of spin his cue round in his hand sometimes as he was getting down to the shot. No technical reason to do it. It just added to that whole uh, vibe that he had going on. I mean, Alex Higgins in his own way, you know, comes into this category, certainly has to enter your thoughts. But whatever Alex was doing, Jimmy was doing all of it and doing it far better. He was a much better player in his prime than Alex ever was. So, uh, you know, you're talking entertainers for me. It's got to be Jimmy. Well, you've made a very compelling case. I can't put him in, obviously, because yeah. uh, he's in the rest category. But what I will say is um, I was at, uh, a couple of years ago at the World Snooker Awards down at the Dorchester, and um, Jimmy got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I'm not kidding, the amount of players, top players, who were coming over, because I sat on his table because it was the Eurosport table, and mm. the amount of top players that were coming over, hugging him, someone literally nearly in tears, just explaining what he meant to them. Um, I think my theory with Jimmy was he was so good, so talented, that he almost felt I shouldn't play the conventional way. I should be playing Mm. these shots because I can and because people enjoy watching it. Um, Now, you could argue that maybe cost him tournaments, but, yeah, I agree. He was a very, very, very entertaining player to watch. However, (laughs) I haven't picked him. I have picked Alex Higgins, actually, Mm. um, because Alex got there before him, I guess, and... I think Jimmy was a lot of Jimmy's play was informed by by knowing Alex and playing Alex. Um, he was an intoxicating player, often an intoxicated player, but <laughs> but he was so different, wasn't he? His whole style is different to anything we've ever seen. You know, the moving around on the shot, just the kind of that um, sort of twitchy way you couldn't take your eyes off him. Now a lot of people, okay, might not have liked him, his sort of personal personality, whatever. But if Alex Higgins was playing snooker, you would watch because. There was something hypnotic about it, and he did bring people to the sport without any question. Particularly, you know, in the in the days before, you know, it was massively popular. He was bringing people to the sport. 
regardless of any, you know, thing he's done, you know, personally and, and disciplinary wise or whatever, he was someone who could pack a hall. Um, and I just think, yeah, he maybe because he was sort of the first player who broke the mold in a way and uh, wasn't one of the sort of well-behaved professionals. I think he, he was a very entertaining player. Maybe just, not that. Just bef- yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, no, I was just going to say, but I thought you were going to move on from the category there. Some mm. people might say, well, entertainment doesn't matter because it's all about winning, isn't it? Actually, being an entertainer can really work in your favour. And we saw it with Jimmy and probably with Alex over the years. You get the crowd on your side. You get the momentum. That can help you in a match. It can help you in a very well, big way, actually. So from that point of view, I, I think it, it certainly you know does count when you're putting together the ideal player. Well, yeah, and someone who understands that is Judd Trump. I mean, there's obviously no crowds at the moment. It's a bit different. But he will, if he's won a frame, he'll turn it on because it does get the crowd on your side. And it makes, yeah. you, feel, makes you feel good. Listen, if he can play like that, why not? Um, let's move on. So I've got two more categories to go. Number nine, professionalism. Now, this is a, a sort of, it's obviously it's not specific to sort of technique or, or how you play on the table. It's how you carry yourself, I think, as a snooker player. And the player I've chosen for that is Stephen Hendry. Um, I started covering Snook in the late 90s. Stephen was still very much a top player, albeit not as dominant as he once had been. And what was interesting was other players, John Higgins, I think, was the first, and then there was sort of Mark and Ronnie as well. They started to, to become world number one, but there was still a great deference in the sport towards Hendry. He was still felt for quite a long time to be, you know, the top figure in the sport because of what he'd achieved. Now, imagine... Obviously, he became world champion at the age of 21, you know, very young. And he had to essentially take over from Steve Davis as the person who was always in demand for interviews, always in demand for personal appearances, had to represent himself and the sport on, you know, things like Question of Sport and and all sorts of things. And he just did it. He was a worker. He was a grafter. Obviously, Ian Doyle, his manager, I think, instilled a lot of that into him, a lot of that discipline. He just did it. And OK, we often talk and joke about interviews he's done when he's lost and hasn't said anything. But that is insignificant in compared to all the times he's turned up, done his job, been a proper pro. And he represented the sport at quite a young age, I think, you know, immaculately, actually. Um, and that's why there's other categories I could put him in. But I just think as a professional, he was superb. Yeah, and you can even see it now when you hear him talking about the game and when you uh, see him doing the punditry and the commentary on television. He's all business, no nonsense. Mm. If someone plays the wrong shot or is doing something they shouldn't do or is taking the wrong approach to the match, he'll call it out straight away because that's the way he would have dealt with himself if he felt he was doing something wrong. He wouldn't give himself a free pass. He'd be giving himself a telling off and telling him he's got to do it better next time. Probably he's channeling the inner voice of Ian Doyle, who was probably saying all the same things to him at that time. So, yeah, Henry certainly uh, is a good call in that category. He's spoken at times about who his sporting idols are. And he's mentioned people like Tiger Woods, Michael Schumacher, Kenny Dalglish, who actually he became quite good friends with, I think, uh, later on in his career. They all have the same uh, attributes as the ones we've just described for Stephen Henry. So he is a very good call. Um, but I wanted to put him in a different category, as we've discussed. So I've actually picked Mark Selby in, in mm. this one. And, you know, again, just it's it's no nonsense with Mark as well. I mean, it's all about getting out there and winning the match and finding a way to win the match. His way of winning matches is very different to Stephen Hendry's way uh, for the reasons we've discussed. But, I mean, what has Mark ever done to let himself down as a professional? Absolutely nothing. I mean, you can see how devoted and dedicated he is to the game. He clearly puts the work in. And, you know, people talk about putting the work in. It doesn't just mean on the practice table. 
putting in the hours before you go to play. It's really putting in a shift on the table as well and hanging in there to uh, find a way to win the match when perhaps you're not playing at your best. So for those reasons, uh, I've picked Mark Selby. And, you know, we talked about Mark Williams and his temperament and where a lot of that comes from. A lot of, you know, Mark Selby's professionalism comes from his background. He didn't have it easy growing up by any means. And I think he appreciates where he is now and wants to make the absolute most of the opportunities that life has afforded him with the talent that he obviously has for snooker. So, yeah, Henry, very good shout. Steve Davis obviously could have been in there as well. You could name a few others, uh, but I've gone for Mark Selby. I think we lost you very briefly during that, but only briefly, so we got the gist of it. Okay, so yeah. the final category final category is, is legacy, and I guess this is a sort of a wider meaning to just, okay, what have you actually achieved? It's what you, it's what you leave behind, and it's what you've meant to the culture few contenders that uh, that are already on the list a few that aren't obviously joe davis i mean he was the first mm. professional snooker player he started the whole thing i think ray reardon as well you know he was uh, maybe the first sort of top professional in the modern television era and and sort of he i think got what that meant and we talked about him actually last week all the appearances he made in popular culture mm. but i think ultimately i mean i you may i think have gone for the same player i don't know yeah it's steve davis isn't it it's got to be yeah uh, I mean, if you again, again, Hendry could be in there because of you know the legacy he left on the table in terms of the way he changed the way a lot of people saw the game, as we discussed earlier. But yeah, I mean, Steve just changed what being a professional snooker player was, didn't he? I mean, nobody was doing anything like that kind of practice. Certainly, you, you talk to players who were top players uh, in the late seventies and early eighties, and they say it quite openly that they didn't practice or ever put in the work to the, remotely the same extent that Steve did. I remember in his prime, he talked about working eight hours a day at his game. And, you know, it just seems mind blowing that somebody could do it. And, you know, we, we spoke about all the appearances he used to make on television. And, of course, he was playing to the business end of so many tournaments. You wonder when he found the time to do it. But he was so focused on the game. There was one match, I think it might have been in the Scottish Masters. And when it was, it was when he was just starting to slip from the very top of the game. I think he got beaten uh, and then went back home and probably like drove home from Scotland must have arrived home about five or six in the morning and went straight to practice you know for the next tournament in a few weeks time and there were so many stories like that uh also in terms of the the lifestyle getting to bed early and you know Steve knows how to have a good time in his own way certainly does it more now than he did back then but when it was tournament time when it was practice time preparation for a tournament he knew how to discipline himself in life and how to give himself the best chance of going out and succeeding. His attitude around the venues where he just wouldn't talk to a lot of the other players. And, you know, he wanted to build that aura around him. And look, it worked for him. Stephen Hendry actually copied that uh, with great success afterwards. So, yeah, definitely. I'm going, going for Steve Davis for that. You could put him in a number of other categories. Uh, but but even as well on the table, his, his safety play. I mean, he took that whole aspect of the game to a new level. He was also the greatest break builder in his prime. Obviously, he's been overtaken by others since then. But even the, the regularity with which he made centuries and big breaks, one frames in a single visit. Yes, he was overtaken a few years later by Stephen Hendry. But at his time, he was taking that to a whole new level and giving players a whole new way to look at the game and to think about what it meant to be a professional. And just one final point to make. We talked about the role that Ian Doyle played in Stephen Hendry's outlook and approach to his career. Well, at least as much and perhaps even more so, Barry Hearn obviously instilled all of that in Steve and uh, is now instilling it in the game itself in so many ways. Yeah, and I think sort of specifically thinking about this category, you know, I mentioned players coming over to Jimmy and, you know, hugging him and, and all the rest of it. 
for example, Michael Holt has said, maybe Steve Davis isn't the greatest snooker player ever, but he's the player who means the most to him. That's mm. legacy. That's legacy. It's inspiring a kid of eight or nine in the eighties seeing Steve on the TV. It's inspiring him to go and practice and work hard and then become a player himself. Ronnie O'Sullivan was a Steve Davis fan. John Higgins was a Steve Davis fan. You know, these guys who've become amazing players in their own rights. Steve, in the 80s when snooker burst onto the scene and became an integral part of the culture as we've discussed before he stood on top of the world he was the number one he was the player that was always always seemed to be winning he was the player you could send onto a chat show and he'd be great on it you know he he has left a great legacy and you know good luck to him now he's sort of moved on from snooker hasn't he he's put his cue down he's doing his um well, music, if, if that's what you want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. Good, good luck to him. You know, how can you, how can you not respect the guy? Amazing, really. And of course, I, we still, we still see him on the BBC, obviously, as well. Yeah, and I've just got to say one other little story about him. And there are a million stories you could tell about Steve in this category. But Hector Nunes, who, you know, works for a number of newspapers and has been around the game for it must be about fifteen or twenty years now. He tells the story. He was at the German Masters a few years ago, and Steve was there. I, I don't know if Steve would still have been playing at that level at that time, but for some reason, Steve was there. Or maybe it wasn't the German Masters. You might know this story better. But whatever it was, it was absolutely freezing cold. And Hector wanted to get some photograph with Steve. Now, if it was in Berlin, it may have been at the Brandenburg Gate or somewhere. But that's not really the point of the story anyway. Hector was asked, I mean, a lot of big time sports stars of Steve stature might be, oh, well, speak to my agent. Maybe we'll do it tomorrow. Steve just put on his hat, said to Hector, let's go. And they went out in the freezing cold and took the picture there and then. So we still got that professionalism and trying to promote the game uh, as much as he possibly can even now. Because, you know, people said it about Stephen Hendry, didn't they? That, you know, Stephen loves winning. Steve loves snooker. And there's nobody with a deeper or purer love for the game than Steve. And he still has it now well into his 60s. That's very true. Well, that's that's it then. That's the perfect snooker player. So let's just run down them. OK, so, well, actually, the first five we agreed. So potting. Mm. Potting, Judd Trump, break building, Ronnie O'Sullivan, safety, John Higgins, temperament, Mark Williams, technique, Sean Murphy. For tactics, I went for Mark Selby. You went for Stephen Hendry. Rest play, I went for Jimmy White. You went for Karen Wilson. Entertainment, I went for Alex Higgins. You went for Jimmy White. Professionalism, I went for Stephen Hendry. You went for Mark Selby. And legacy, we both went for Steve Davis. Let us know what you think. I mean, that may have may all been a washout. Who knows? But let us know what you think. Podcast at mail.com. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. Remember, it's a different player for each category. I don't think that was a washout. I think that was all right. I think yeah, that was, all was right. pretty good. Yeah, it was interesting yeah. that we agreed on six out of the 10 categories. I mean, yeah. even the other ones, you know, I think uh, we both uh, agreed that each other's choices were at least very close to being our well, own choices. So, well, the thing is, there's actually only, there's actually only 11 players there uh, in, that ten, mm. in that 10, if you know what I mean. So, anyway, yeah. but let's, let's move on to the emails. Now, like I say, we've had a lot this week, which I appreciate. Unfortunately, of course, it means unless we're here for three hours and maybe can't read them all out, but we'll try and get through as many as possible. And um, happy to say uh, that James Cook, who uh, emailed us, he was traveling around America during the sort of lockdown there in the summer, and he's got back in contact with us. He says, I'm back in New York, I've been back in New York dealing with relative normality, work, kids at school, etc. not to mention an election. So I've been a little busy. Apologies. Well, you know, you're entitled to have your own life, James. Not, <laughs> you don't have to email us every week. He says, however, tomorrow I load up the car. So he sent me this last week. He said, I load up the car and family and dog and head west to Colorado for the winter. And, and whilst dealing with moving and packing, I've been catching up on the podcast with a snooker scene binge. Who needs Netflix? Quite right. Some thoughts on recent features. Enjoyed the Martin Gould interview and how he was really was a child prodigy 
at the age of two and a half, and his openness about everything, brave and inspiring. Only the Snooker Scene podcast can spend 10 minutes debating the etiquette of whether it's proper for commentators to address a player by last name, first name, or both names. And that's why I keep coming back. Snooker disasters. Neil Robertson driving to the wrong Barnsley for the World Open qualifiers last year. Didn't get a mention. Yeah, well, fair enough. Uh, we did mention that. We did, did mention we? that. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, snooker in movies. How about the scene in The Craze when, when they teach a person a lesson by putting a sword through their hand over the snooker table? He sent me a clip, but I, I don't really want to watch it. Um, he said, anyway, as I have a 30-hour drive tomorrow, I've devised a way of not only keeping the kids entertained, but which allows me to listen to the podcast on the journey. Snooker scene podcast bingo. Okay. It works, yeah. like, it works like this. And other listeners could also play along. Each person has a card with popular phrases and sayings from the podcast. The first one to check off all the phrases on that card while listening to the podcast is the winner. I'll say right from the outset here, there won't be any prizes, at least not from us. Mm. Okay, so here is a selection of the phrases on the cards, okay? Lockdown. Wi-Fi problems stroke issues. <laughs> Dave Tyndall. The Mercantile Credit Classic. Cl- Clive. Yeah. Neil, Neil Folds. Now he, now, he says here, I don't, I don't want to be like uh, a, a, ped, a pedant, James. I'll rephrase that. I want to be a pedant. Okay. He says the Goya match play, but I think he means Goya match room. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, the word niche and Milton Keynes. So they're the ones to start with. And he says, of course, the ultimate winning phrase equal to Mayfair on a Monopoly board is Fergal O'Brien. Yes. Increasingly, Fergal now is being mentioned by other people, not us. But anyway, I, I get your point. He says, actually, as he's mentioned so much, maybe he's more the old Kent Road. I'll let you analyse and discuss. Well, you can play along if you want. I, I'm not sure how many of those we've mentioned this week so far, but uh, anyway, we're, we're still uh, got some emails to read out. Uh, Neil Harrison has written about the champion of champions. We were talking about the fact that there are players off the rankings. How else could they get them in? You mentioned runners-up. He says, I thought I'd put forward my proposal for a change in the format. This year's champion of champions had to be topped up with highest-ranked players. It's not uncommon, as it happened several times in the past. In my opinion, when using the above criteria... It takes the shine away from the whole point of the tournament, akin to football, where third and fourth place teams are given entry into the Champions League. While not intending to diss the achievements of players, I don't think the winners of the shootout, seniors, six reds, etc., and also minor, minor ranking event winners should be given automatic entry. This may not be popular with some. However, I think it would ensure only champions play in the Champion of Champions. My format would be to reduce the field to eight players from 16, and instead of the group format, instead have four best of 17 quarterfinals played over two sessions with the semis best of 17 and the final best of 19. I think the qualifying tournament should be ranked by prestige. World Championship, uh, previous year's Champion of Champions, Masters UK, China Open, Coral Series, etc. Then every tournament ranked in order. Should the same player win more than one of these events, go to the next highest ranked tournament until the eight places have been filled. Maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but would guarantee only champions competed in the Champion Champions and more than likely champions of the best tournaments and over longer matches which people like to watch. Neil, thank you very much for your email, which I completely disagree with, I've got to be honest. I think the format, the 16-man format, is superb at the Champion of Champions. I like the fact that winners of tournaments that are not considered to be absolutely top-notch are in it, the Scott Donaldsons, the Michael Holtz, etc., Luca Purcell, because otherwise what you're really going to have is pretty much the top eight in the world playing in the tournament. Now, that would be a great tournament, don't get me wrong. I'd love to watch a, the, the format with the best of 17s, with the eight best players in the world, fine. Make that another tournament. Champion of Champions, I think, actually it does work in its current uh, format. And I think it's a great reward 
you know, you see like Michael Giorgio when he won the shootout, you know, that was a massive moment for him. He didn't even realise he'd be in the champion of champions as well. It's another bonus and another reward for winning a tournament. So I understand your thinking. I personally just don't agree with it. Yeah, I'm not actually going to add anything to that because I was about to say pretty much everything you've said there. I think having other players in there who you don't necessarily see in the elite events is a huge part of what the champion of champions is all about. And I think what makes it is the fact that they're not generally being thrown in just because they're lower ranked players. They've got there because they've won a tournament somewhere along the way. So I would agree with everything you say. Just to pick up on a couple of other things there, we mentioned Neil Robertson. It's remarkable to think he didn't get into any of those categories in, in the mm. 10 that we picked. He's probably the, the best player to, to, to miss out on it. And you mentioned Fergal O'Brien there. It's funny that <laughs> someone pointed out two weeks ago how much we talk about him. I think last week was the first time in months that we didn't actually mention him on the podcast. And the irony is the one week he was actually mm. on it when you interviewed him, I think someone was hoovering in the background and you could barely hear him. There was, Or maybe that was Ken. I don't know. But uh, anyway. <laughs> what, well, yeah, no, Ken, you know, you're right. Ken... Um, I interviewed him at the Masters and we were sat in the breakfast area, um, but there was nothing going on. It was it was quiet. And then suddenly they did start hoovering. And yeah, that wasn't great. Fergal was in, um, I think, at Manchester at the English Open. And we were, where we were sat, we were very close to the arena. And basically, I think, you know, he's a player, so he understands. He, he decided to, I mean, he's quite softly spoken anyway, Fergal, but he decided yes. to keep his voice down because he didn't want to bleed through into the arena. Listen, it's people who are used to that on this podcast. It's not all, it's not all pristine. Um, but anyway, just then before my, you move uh, on, just for, if you're going to tell that story, I have to tell this one as well. It was 2002, the Irish Masters at City West. And I was working for TV3, which is kind of like the Irish equivalent of ITV. And they had a half hour sports program every night at that time called Sports Tonight. And I was doing quite a bit of stuff for it. And I said to the editor of it, look, when the guys are over for the Irish Masters, will I do some like lengthy sit-down interviews with them? Because in a half-hour programme, you had the scope to run them. And we can put them out coming up to the World Championship. And they were all for it. And I got Stephen Hendry to sit down for one, which was fantastic, because obviously it was only a few years since he'd won it, and he was still going in as a big contender. And there was a, a place outside, there was like a garden area with garden furniture. And I thought, this is great. We'll sit out in this garden. Again, like the interview you just described there, it was nice and quiet. So I thought, this is going to be brilliant. Got the greatest player of all time, which at that time he indisputably was. I'm going to sit down in this open air setting, nice, peaceful garden, and reflect on his career. I got about 10 seconds into his first answer. Someone came along with a big hedge trimmer just behind <laughs> us. <laughs> so bad. We had the only trying to do it was standing in the lobby and there was a door that kept swinging open and shut behind us and there was a sign hanging off it that was blowing around the place but the, the thing was when I said to Stephen oh sorry we're gonna have to go inside and do this he said fine by me it's bloody freezing out here so uh, we've all had those experiences in our time <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't I mean it, it's, a, it's very unlikely I'll, I'll concede but wouldn't it have been great if the person with the hedge trimmer had been mm. popular children's television presenter Dave Benson Phillips because then it would literally be Benson and Hedges anyway. Oh, my word. Well, actually, do you know what? Bearing in mind the sort of relationship <laughs> they have, I wouldn't have been greatly surprised to look up and see it was Mark Williams doing it just to put the put, just to ruin it for us. Anyway, listen, this, this is all just chit-chat because, we, yep. because the, the mystery of Billy Snadden is what people really want. Oh, well, this, yeah, let's get to this, yeah. Now, we, ha we had a correspondent contact us convinced that Billy Snadden, former Scottish professional, had appeared on a TV drama about a snooker agent. And we weren't sure we could have this clarified. Well, John Bennett has the answer. He says, after your recent podcast, 
where there was a question mark about Billy Snadden being involved in some ITV program about snooker agent, I texted Billy, okay, and unfortunately, it's not true. So that's it. it that's, that's all the End information the we have. Just wasn't on it. Yeah. He, he says he was also mentioned he may have joined the police force after his snooker career ended. This was also not true. He did, however, try and join the police force, and after going through the process, was advised to reapply a year later, which he never did. So Billy Snadden not only has not been in the night TV drama, he's not a policeman. Uh, back, John just adds, though, back to TV programmes involving snooker. The one I like was Give Us a Break with Robert Lindsay as the manager-type figure, Arthur, Arthur Daly-like character, and I think it was Paul McGann, or of I think it was Paul McGann. I believe Jeff Folds was a technical advisor on that series. And we've had another email similar to that, Scott Fife. He says, uh, while I can't recall any drama featuring a snooker agent on ITV, never mind Billy Stanton, there was a short-lived BBC series in 1983 called Give Us a Break, which starred Robert Lindsay as the manager of his snooker-playing brother-in-law, Paul McGann. So this is a second source now. We've got this uh, confirmed. He said, the IMDb for the eight episodes doesn't show any obvious cameos from the game, unless I've overlooked a referee from that era. Well, I do, I, I do know of the thing. I don't think I've ever seen it, oddly. Um, I don't know whether you can I mean, you pretty much get everything these days, either on YouTube or you know some eBay-style thing. But have you ever seen it? Uh, it, no, well, I don't remember seeing it, but uh, it does ring a bell, all right. Yeah, I mm. think it did happen. It just shows everything at the time. I mean, snooker was so big, there was hardly any program that didn't feature it at one point or another. I remember seeing an episode of EastEnders many, many years ago, and two of the characters, I think one of them might have been Phil Mitchell, and the other, the, wasn't the guy from Spandau Ballet in EastEnders for a while? Martin Kemp, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was Martin Kemp, that was it. And there was this big rivalry between them, you know, there's got to be a big sort of standoff and rivalry in these soaps. And it was agreed that this was somehow going to be settled by playing a best of nine snooker match. And the thing was, everybody else who lived in Albert Square went to the snooker club to watch this. Now, can you imagine <laughs> asking all your friends and neighbours to come and sit and watch two club players play a best of nine and that they all sit there till the end? I mean, it'll go on for about six hours for a start. So it seems unlikely that uh, that, that would have been yeah. true to life. It was quite hard, actually, to get in to watch Martin Kemp because they had to go through Here the barricades. Here we go. Had to yeah, go don't, nice. don't, don't ruin the joke. Don't talk over the joke. It was a great joke. <laughs> anyway, um, I listened back to last week's podcast. It sounded like we were drunk. We weren't. I think we were just sort of, um, I don't know, unusually upbeat. I mean, I was I was literally positive, but that was another yeah, thing. Anyway, anyway, we can edit this out. Um, okay, so so one thing I did discuss uh, last week, which I said I never would again, was, of course, the, the, the ongoing Triple Crown. And uh, an interesting email about this from Matthew McConnell, which I think possibly represents, I think, what a lot of people think, actually, which is that maybe the Triple Crown is contrived, but a lot of Stuka fans clearly actually quite like it, which is fair enough. So he writes, I've been really enjoying the podcast. However, at the risk of derailing another one with a triple crown tangent, I have a few thoughts to share with you on the matter. Firstly, I largely agree with your opinion on the triple crown as a concept, and I admire your one-man crusade to fight its injustice. Yes, I'm very much the Nelson Mandela of the triple crown thing. Uh, He says, however, I have to question whether or not the validity and integrity of the idea is actually a relevant issue at this point. Most, if not all, players have bought into the idea. They themselves refer to triple crown events. Ronnie winning 20 of them is seen as a big record alongside world title wins and the like. And they put pressure on themselves to peak for these events, e.g. Judd at the UK Championship last year. If they feel more pressure for these events and if they see them as the big three tournaments of the season, then does does that not make them so? Has it not become a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way? Obviously, the origin of the idea of the Triple Crown is suspect, and these events were not designed with that concept in mind. But I feel the buy-in from players has made that irrelevant. The bottom line is they will always see the UK Championship 
as a bigger event than the China Open. I'm just going to jump in there, Matthew. Everything you said there made total sense. I'm not sure, though, actually, that last sentence is correct because the prize money for the China Open, it's not all about money, but the prize money is bigger than the UK, the first prize is. So I've spoken to a few players. That's not necessarily true. I think everything else you said there has a lot of validity. He goes on. Second, if we accept that the Triple Crown has become a self-fulfilling thing, I would like to suggest some changes that can be made to the Masters and the UK Championship to make them worthy of that status. The Masters has established itself as the number two tournament of the year in recent times, in my opinion. The venue, prestige, history and elite nature of the event have all been huge factors in that. However, the format still lets it down a bit, I feel. If you took someone who wasn't all that familiar with the snooker tour and showed them the structure of the Masters and the Shanghai Masters, for example, chances are they think Shanghai was a bigger event. Therefore, I think a good change for the Masters will be to make the semi-finals best of 17 stroke 19 and then make the final a best of 19 stroke 21 stroke 25, depending on your fancy. All of it, all it would require is starting a couple of days earlier, which w- works perfectly because the Masters has plenty of days in January to use. I'll jump in again there. You say that, but you're assuming that the host broadcaster, for example, the BBC would want to show 10 days. They have a contract to show eight days. If they show more days, it costs a lot more money and they might not think it's worth it. So that's a reason why that might not happen. Uh, he continues, the UK Championship undoubtedly the rump tournament of the Triple Crown needs an overall as well. Suggestion list I sent to you on the last podcast was good. Two sessions for the semis, three for the final. You could give top players a buy into the first round or buy in the first round, sorry, as that person suggested, introduce a qualifying round or two maybe to avoid having to use those awful four tables out in the shed, as I think Jimmy White once called it. Uh, or adopt a system like the Saudi tournament was going to have. It was all tiered for the first couple of rounds. Finally, the prize money, and therefore by extension, the ranking points need to improve. How can you have what's supposed to be the second biggest ranking tournament in the calendar be outshining ranking points by the China Open? He continues a little bit more, says a very nice thing about me at the end. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I'll get your name right, as you've said it. Uh, Thank you, Matthew. Yeah. Um, Well, the the issue with the prize money, you know, the China tournaments have their own promoters, and they sort of compete against each other to see who can have the best Chinese tournament, which is a good thing for snooker because it means they put more money in. Uh, the UK Championship is is re, um, dependent to a degree on sponsorship, also the broadcasting rights fees, and also, I guess, World Snooker Tours um, feeling that they should respect its history and its heritage. I don't actually agree with changing the Masters format. I think the Masters is a superb event. I think it works perfectly. Um, the UK format has changed, I think not for the better, personally. One thing I will say, though, is I do think that and we're not there this year, sadly, for reasons we know about. But I do think having it at York is a massive plus because it's always full. It's a lovely place to go. All the players like going there. I think that certainly adds to its prestige. But, um, yeah, that's Triple Crown. I, I, I'm, I know I've said this before. I do think what he said at the start there is absolutely true. I think the, the game generally has bought into it. So, fair enough. OK, it is this thing. All I'm saying is... The way it's talked about, as if it's always been like the golf majors and so on, is just factually incorrect. It's not always been like that. But anyway, that's. Uh, have you got anything to say on the Triple Crown? Not a huge amount. I mean, I'd echo most of what you say there. I don't think I feel quite as strongly about it as you do, but I don't think anyone <laughs> feels as strongly about anything as, 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 as you do on that. But uh, I, I think, just picking up on the point you made, it, it's anyone who has an issue with the whole Triple Crown concept, I think, as you say, it's the way it gets talked about and almost used as a way by some people to speak to the detriment of other events yeah it's almost as if these three are the only ones that really matter yeah. and you know the, re- the rest are just sort of filling in time in between and that's absolutely not the case and you know you don't want to go down that road because i think that happens a bit too much in things like golf and tennis i mean you look at the four tennis majors you know everyone knows when they're going on and if you've any interest in tennis at all you're following and 
who's still in them and you know when the big matches are and who's playing in them. And but you look at most tennis events the rest of the year, nobody really pays the great you know much attention to them unless you're or, you know a real hardcore tennis fan. And I think there can be a little bit of that in golf as well sometimes. So it's not a road we want to go down. We want all the tournaments to be yeah. important. And well, I think I hit, the players do regard them in that way. Yeah, sorry sorry to butt in, but this, no. is an, this is an important point, and this is my last ever word on the Triple Crown, OK? Yeah, so, I like, I like this. <laughs> so you've got to, it's a, quite a sort of British thing, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's, they're all the tournaments are British. Here's the thing, right? I've been to the German Masters at the Tempodrome, and the fans there could not love it more. They never come out at the end of you know a great final at the Tempodrome and say, well, that was fantastic, but what a shame it wasn't the, the UK Championship as part of the Triple Crown. No, for them... That is a great week of Stuka. That's a great event. And it deserves to be respected on its own merits, just because it's not part of this sort of artificial thing. Anyway, I've said enough about that. So um, fair enough. You know, whatever opinion you want on it is fine. I do agree with what Matthew says about it's become accepted. Fair enough. Let's move on. Champion of Champions was uh, recently, and uh, I actually meant to talk about this and forgot. Simon Biggin has, has raised it. He said, I absolutely love last week's podcast. Probably the most niche yet. Well, wait to hear this Wait to hear this week's. Uh, coming in at 1 hour 15 minutes, I was gripped from start to finish. I'm writing to hear your and Michael's thoughts about the re-rack in the second frame between Mark Allen and Judd Trump in the Champion of Champions semi-final last week. With Allen trailing by 39 points, it, appear, it appeared fairly early on in the exchanges that led to the... Re- Sorry, I've read uh, it. It's appearing fairly. It's appearing fairly early on in the exchanges that led to the re-rack. That Alan's intention was to force a re-rack, particularly after the ref's three-shot warning. No problem with Tatiana Wollaston's decision to intervene, but I thought it a little gamesmanship from Alan, and I wondered if this had an effect on Trump, as he never really settled from there. I tried to put myself in Trump's situation. If an opponent did this against me, I think I would feel a little peeved, as it seemed he had no interest in breaking the pattern of play. Didn't even consider any other shot than the roll-up. I realise he broke no rules in playing this way. Just thought it a little odd. Can't remember another instance of where it seemed so obvious that a player was blatantly playing to force a re-rack. Despite this, he was a worthy champion, certainly played the best snooker all week. Well, it was an interesting incident. I think you've identified correctly, Simon, the significance of it was that it did come early in the match. Um, but the fact is, actually, if you're the player who's trailing, it's not in your interest to open the game up, really. Um, it's the it's the onus is on the player ahead. If they don't want the frame to be re-racked and lose that advantage, they've got to do it. Now, what Trump did was, Allen was rolling to the pack. Trump was playing away from the pack, but he, he, he was playing in positions where Allen could then roll in again. Eventually, what he did was, because Tatiana did step in, and I think actually she, I thought what she did was fair enough. She's trying to get the game, game flowing. What he did in the end was he played the cue ball down to bulk and sort of bargained on not leaving a long red on. And that was different because then Alan can't just play the same shot. But I'm not sure Mark Allen did anything wrong. One thing I would say is, and this is one of Clive's, and if you're playing the podcast bingo, we mentioned Clive. Um, one of his ideas is that actually what you could do is take the points re frame into the frame. So actually Trump would still be in front. Then to him, it doesn't really matter if it's re Yeah, it becomes a different sort of game then, doesn't it? When you're in that situation where you know the re-rack is coming, as you say, one player wants the re-rack, which is quite legitimate. The other player doesn't want the re-rack, so he's got to find a way of breaking the the stalemate, basically, while the other player is trying to thwart him from doing so. So I think it's all absolutely fine. I didn't didn't see any issue with it at all. And, you know, it's really noticeable how much quicker we get to these things nowadays. I mean, back in the day, even 25 years ago, I mean, you had to have maybe close to half an hour of stalemate before anyone would start talking about a re-rack. And it really did drag on. Now, 
it tends to happen very quickly. I've seen frames where the players have played two shots each and it's already become apparent, OK, this is going nowhere. Let's just start it again. So certainly no question at all that uh, anything w- was done that wasn't in the rules of the game or indeed not in the spirit of the game. I thought everything was absolutely fine with that situation. Yeah, and it's it, it, it's another kind of test for the players. How do you cope in that situation? I think it was... Yeah, I think the refereeing was actually very good, um, and she was clear the number of shots that she would give them. So she gave them, you know, the the opportunity to resolve things, and in the end, it was resolved. Obviously, in the end, uh, it was resolved in the match in terms of Mark Allen. Uh, Mark Hayden. Speaking of refereeing, um, we haven't got a referee on the podcast, but um, this is a question about uh, the sort of rules. He says, "I've been playing and watching for 35 years, but I was playing my son the other day when a situation I've never come across before arised." I was wondering if you could give me the answer. Okay, so here we go. He said, with pink and black left, my son potted the pink as intended, but also the black by mistake, of course. But the white finished plum on the black spot. Obviously, I know that when a ball is respotted, it needs to go on the highest available spot if his own is taken. But in this scenario, does the black go on the pink spot and the pink on the blue spot, or the pink go on the pink spot and, oh, the, black, yeah. and, the, and the black on the blue spot? So basically, he's potted pink and black. They're both coming back up, but the cue ball's on the black spot. He says, I've never seen this before. If you could help, it'd be great. Well, my my feeling on this is, and I've never seen it before, and I will check, because this email only came in yesterday, but I will check with the referee. But I'm pretty sure what happens is the pink has got to go on its own spot because its own spot is available. And then the black has got to go on the next highest available, which is the blue spot. I would have thought so, but this is the sort of thing that some of the refs Mm. At a tournament, if this happened during the day, they'd go to the bar afterwards. They'd get four hours out of it. Oh, yeah. talking at least. About it. At least. Yeah. yeah. I remember the uh, the one, what, I think it was Alan Chamberlain was the ref, mm. um, the incident with Graham Dot and Mark Selby at the World Championship, probably about 2008 or nine. I mean, the refs just talked and talked about that for days. They were still talking about it at the party after the final. They just love all that sort of thing. Oh, no, it, it, it's very much their heroine basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just actually speaking of refs, you know, a point you mentioned Tatiana Wollaston there. In a sense, you look at it and think it's going to be very hard for her ever to get the world final because that generally gets announced round about March. Now, they couldn't possibly announce in March that she was going to referee the world final because what would happen if her husband does it? So it's, it's an interesting one. You know, she's quite prominent now. She's been around a few years. And, you know, for reasons that have nothing to do with ability, it might be impossible for her ever to fulfill what is every referee's dream. Unless, of course, she outlasts her husband and she's still refing after he's dropped off the tour. Well, what I suspect is if they wanted her to do it, they wouldn't announce it. Yeah. And, and they would then play it by ear and, and basically wait for Ben to get Ben to get knocked out. One thing that would not happen is Ben would not lose his first round match because he never does. He's played last 55 ranking events, not including the Championship League because it's group format. But last 55 ranking events, he's won his first round match 48 times, including, of course, against Neil Robertson last week at the German Masters. Anyway, I'm going to do two more emails. And if I don't read yours out, I've still got them. So maybe we can do them next week. Um, But uh, we've had a lot in and we're a bit pressed for time. John Hogarth, thanks to yourself and Michael for the great entertainment on Podcast 131. Brought back a lot of great memories from the 80s. That was last week. So Lenny Bruce, he's not afraid, I call it in the end. (laughs) Um, He said, I remember being at the British Open watching Joe Johnson playing on for snookers for ages against Brian Rosewell. This was mentioned last week. Initially, I found it it tedious, but as time went on, realised it was slowly changing the momentum of the match. This was tablecraft you rarely see today. I'd be fascinated to know if Joe has any comment from the match. I will ask him actually later if I see him. 
he says, another comment would be on the idea of having a points target in a match. So I agree playing to 1,000 points could become one-sided. But to have one tournament a year played to 500 points in every round could be an interesting concept. Perhaps a better idea would be in the Championship League with all matches to 200 or 300 points. This would get rid of the draws and players would be allowed, could be allowed to complete the break they're on when reaching the target for bonus points. Well, well that would certainly stop any conceding. He said, I remember the world doubles with some nostalgia. However, there were, there were very few close matches at the final stages. The place of, pace of play was slow and at times tedious. It's actually good to hear that because John, he's a, he's a crucible regular since 83. He's not sort of um, romanticising the, the old world doubles. The fact is, it actually wasn't that great, really. Um, and it, he was there to see it. He says, by contrast, the World Team Championship tended to have close matches and a great level of tension. This is the one tournament I'd love to see come back. One of the great advantages of the World Team event of the 80s was the paying spectator could enjoy watching six players in one session. This showcased showcased a greater number of players and was easy for children to engage with due to the stop-start nature of the matches. They kind of played two frames at a time, sort of best of nine. Of course, the World Cup is has come back in a different format. Not a great one, I don't think. Two two uh, people teams, and it's quite a, quite a convoluted format. But anyway, um, the World Team Cup was slightly different. Now then, he says, a final comment on Triple Crowns. Is the, is the mystery of the mythical Triple Crown a suitable follow-up title for a Scooby-Doo sequel now the riddle of the Crucible curse has been solved? Now, if you're just tuning in thinking, I thought this was a snooker podcast. So Neil Folds, when he had a, a bit of a meltdown in the summer, um, sent us a, essentially a Scooby-Doo script um, about the Crucible curse. Well, that, that had come from, we'd been talking about the Crucible curse, and yeah. I was completely dismissive of it. It's it's my triple crown, basically, yeah, if you want yeah. to put it in those terms. And I'd said, it just sounds like, you know, the name of a Scooby-Doo episode. That's right, yeah. And of yeah. course, and, Neil, as you say, took it further. And spoiler alert, it turned out Steve Davis was responsible for it. Anyway, <laughs> um, so anyway, he said, uh, to continue John's email, he says, Scooby and Shaggy could uncover the truth regarding this imaginative object as they visit the mythical ruins of Webley Conference Centre and Preston Guildhall. They could rediscover the importance of the Masters and UK Championship in their own right by travelling back in time to view plush seating and exciting 17-frame matches from days of yore. They could then follow all the clues to be found by listening to podcasts and reading old editions of Snooker Scene to make the amazing discovery that the UK Masters have great trophies, but actual crowns do not exist. They would go the ghostly disguised person who was responsible for cutting out a BBC event from the tour, thus creating the myth of there having to be three crowns for three events. The result of their investigations will be a great emphasis when the Masters and UK Championships come round on how many times an individual has won that particular worthy title. These titles would then be largely ignored for the rest of the season as it builds to the Crucible and playing for the only major championship in the Stooky year. The mystery will finally be solved when the last ball is potted and from a secret vault in the depths of the Crucible, a crown in the shape of a trophy topped by a little lady is brought <laughs> forth for the winner to be crowned with a single crown. A snooker champion in the world. Well, I, I like I, I like that email a lot actually. I think yeah, so. I like that. Yeah. yeah, I think I can get on board with that one. I think Neil's yeah. one. Well, I just I still haven't quite figured out what to make of that. But I could get on board with that. Maybe Netflix could make a series. Call it The Crown. Yeah, no one's ever thought of that idea. Well, funnily enough, I've been watching the, the new series, and because um, it's set in the eighties, so you know I'm yeah. trying to see. Okay, if you if you want to be true to the sort of cultural uh sort of a moment is is there any snooker in it not so far but uh, i've only I've only watched four episodes uh gillian anderson is playing margaret thatcher and she's playing i don't know whether you've seen sunset boulevard um but she's playing her essentially as norma desmond the sort of the old the old act, actress who goes mad um and, and it's fantastic actually it's it's it, it shouldn't work but it does anyway um finally alpha bonzi our old pal mm. um 
Now, months ago, I asked for people to send in their snooker dreams, and not many people did, which maybe is a good thing. But Alpha <laughs> has said, I thought I'd email you about my strange dream from last night when I was sat in the audience to watch what I thought was the Gibraltar Open final between what, what looked like Oliver Lyons and Tony Drago. Drago, Dra <laughs> it gets better, Drago with long grey hair and a huge grey beard. Be barely watched Lyons potting the winning balls before I had to run for the bus to take me, presumably, to the airport, and I woke up just before I get on. Okay, thank you, Alpha. He says, it reminds me of another strange dream I had as a kid. When Jimmy, when Stephen Hendry beat Jimmy White in the Crucible final, so what else is new? Not sure that was actually a dream. That's just what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nightmare said, for Jimmy. He said, however, White did a car in Wilson, as Steve McGuire would say, and threw a real tantrum upon losing, lying on the floor crying and ripping off his smart waistcoat. To be fair, if Jimmy had done that, I don't think anyone would have <laughs> would have argued with it because he had mm. every right to. He said, so that's the dream section of the email. He said, picking up on last week's point about Ronnie O'Sullivan and BBC Sports Personality of the Year. There's realistically no way the BBC would allow a lowly snooker player, even if he has showed unparalleled brilliance among British sportsmen for 30 years, to win their precious lump of tin. <laughs> Rather dismissive there of the of the old spotty. He says, especially if they have to interrupt Eurosport's coverage of the Scottish Open final on December 13th to do it. But it would be nice for snooker if he was nominated. I agree with that. He said a last point about the dreaded triple crown. There's that phrase again. As silly as we all know it is, completing it is the main reason Steve Davis won the 1988 spotty. Shame there's no footage of Ken Doherty winning the 1997 Irish spotty, which Crucible win that year. Well, I don't know, actually, that that was the main reason. No, Dave, I, I don't think it was. Davis, he kept coming close. And in the end, it was almost inevitable that he would he would get there. You would know more about Ken, of course, winning the Irish yeah. one. How, how big is that? How big a deal is that in Ireland? Yeah, pretty big. It's certainly, it's a bit like the BBC one, actually. I think it was a bigger deal at that time. Um, around that time, Sonia O'Sullivan kept winning it. I think she won it something like five times. Uh, Roy Keane oh, at least, was at least, winner. At least, one, at, least one, at least one O'Sullivan's been successful then. Yeah, good one, good one, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. I do know, however, that um, obviously a lot of golfers have won it in recent times uh, because we've had a lot of success on that front. And I think it was 2014 when he had his best every year and Rory McIlroy won it. Apparently he left without bringing the trophy with him. And it was still sitting around in an office in RT a few days later. And I'm not sure he ever got it. I think they contacted him and he... He wasn't that bothered about it. You know, probably couldn't make room for it next to the, the Claret Jug and the Wanamaker Trophy, both of which he'd won that year. So, yeah, it was a very big deal at the time. It's perhaps a bit less so now. As for Steve winning in 1988, Triple Crown had absolutely nothing to do with it whatsoever uh, because it wasn't a thing at the time. I think it may have been a bit like what we were saying before, that sometimes now these things go to people mm. who've had a really successful career but never actually won it. And Steve was winning a lot of things around that time in 8080. He had a lot of success that year. I think what also helped was the vote was split because um, Sandy Lyle had won the Masters that year. was the first British player to win it. So he was a contender. And I think he did finish either second or third. Plus, it had been an Olympic year. So there had been you know a few contenders from that. Adrian Morehouse was one of them uh, and perhaps one or two other people as well. So th the vote was a bit split. There was no obvious winner that year. And Steve always seemed to get a lot of votes. So perhaps that was the reason why he won it that particular year. And I'm not questioning the validity of it, because certainly given the success he had and his prominence within British sport in the 1980s, I think it was right that he did win it in one particular year. And uh, it turned out to be 1988. Just skimming the, some of the other emails, just to see if we can answer any quickly. Ray Morgan actually is emailed about Steve just talking about what we were talking about in the top 10 thing, really, about his dedication, talking about... Um, one of the uh, sort of practice routines that Frank Callan set up to him that he would obsessively um, follow. 
uh, an email has come in as we've been recording. Uh, obviously, not mm. he, can't, he can't hear us, but uh, Matthew, yeah. Matthew Tommy, very, very, actually, a uh, very short email, which is good. He says, loving the podcast, what young players do you reckon will have a breakthrough season? Well, there's this Chinese player, isn't there, Pang Zhengzhou. He beat Mark mm. Allen uh, last week to qualify for Germany. He also did well in uh, the European Masters, got to the last 16. I don't know that much about him, but clearly one to watch. We saw Aaron Hill uh, beat Ronnie O'Sullivan on TV at the European Masters. He had that uh, bit of a nightmare last night against Jackson Page from 3-0 up, lost 4-3. I think the good thing is there are now a number of young players. This Gao Yang, this Chinese player, is going to play Trump this week in, in, in the Northern Ireland Open. There seem to be more now than maybe there were a few years ago to follow. Which ones will break through? It's hard to say. They're all talented. It's hard. I think the tiered system actually is difficult to, to sort of wade through when you're playing top players early on rather than playing sort of players of your level in qualifiers. Um, but there's a good little crop. And I think, you know, it's inevitable. Some will eventually, you know, rise up the rankings and make it. Well, we had three first season professionals, didn't we, in the last 16 of a uh, tournament earlier on in the season. Aaron Hill obviously was one of those. And he had that great win over O'Sullivan, but it's been a bit of a struggle for him since. And you would hope that he doesn't develop into another sort of James Cahill situation. And that's not knocking James Cahill at all. It's just a simple fact that he's got a great record of beating top players on the big occasion, seems to thrive on it. But then when it's a bit different, when it's table five and there's nobody watching and you're maybe expected to win a bit more, things can be a bit harder in their own way. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't like to see Aaron develop into that because, I mean, he made such an impact with that great result he had earlier in the season, but hasn't been able to follow it up since. But, you know, there are always players coming through with a certain amount of potential. But, the, you know, you know as well as anyone that, there's a huge, huge difference between that and being able to play to a high standard on one or two occasions and people saying you've got potential to then being able to produce it relentlessly week in, week out and really establish yourself as a top player. It's a massive, massive leap. And, uh, you know, all of those guys we've mentioned there, they have a very long way to go before they get anywhere near that. Adam Fisher has written, uh, I won't read your email, Adam, because it's quite long, but essentially what he's saying is he likes some of the new camera angles uh, that, that we've seen in oh, recent yeah. tournaments. And he's just wondering what we think. He, he says, he, he, one thing that I do actually agree with, he says the pocket cam actually adds very little. Just seeing a ball go in from that perspective isn't great. What what I will say, Adam, is what the, the angle I really like, actually, is the sort of, you now see the sort of side view. There was an incident like yesterday, I was commentating with Joe on the Karen Wilson match, and from the sort of main view that you, you're used to the full table, he had this basically it looked like there was a, a chance to pot a thin brown to the right middle. But on the main view, it wasn't absolutely clear. I did think it went, actually. Joe wasn't sure. And then they cut to the side view and you could see very clearly it went. So it, it's interesting how just changing the camera angle does help the viewer sort of follow the game better. Uh, my view on this is always that... You, like that main shot, you know, is the one you should use the most because you can see the whole table. And that's the beauty of Snooker. You can fit the whole playing area into one shot. Um, different broadcasters, different directors have their own views on, you know, how to cut between it. I think the the, the quality of it is excellent, actually. Um, I think, you know, you've got to be careful not to cut away too much when, you know, the cue ball's still running. People want to see, obviously, where the balls are. But, yeah, I think you can definitely develop new angles and you know snoo like like with all broadcasting snooker broadcasting is still evolving we think everyone must have got it down by now there's still different things you can do but i think you know we know what the sort of standard shots are and anything else is kind of an add-on to that the ball end as well we're seeing some shots from mm. that now as well you're getting really good perspective on that and some of the long pots i agree with you things like the side view i love the overhead view as well you know you can really see how the yeah. break has been put together when someone's in among the balls and i totally agree with what's been said there about the pocket cam 
I mean, someone decided that was a great idea probably in the early 90s. And it did get used quite a lot, but you never saw anything from it at all. And then it got to the point where if the cue ball was in the jaws of a pocket, they'd show the ball being hit, the cue ball being hit using the pocket cam. When you've seen absolutely nothing there except the ball being hit. And then inevitably they have to cut away to the main angle uh, to see what actually happens. So I don't think it brought much to it. And we don't really see it very often now, but I think certainly... At the uh, the Triple Crown events, Dave, as you might put it, um, <laughs> I think they still fit the cameras in the pockets, but they just hardly ever actually seem to get used nowadays. And I don't think that brings a lot to it. But but it, other than that, any other angle that you can see the balls from, I think is brilliant and certainly enhances it. Anyone else who emailed it, I'm really out. I apologise. We're going to have to stop, but keep them coming in. And as I say, you know, they, they, it's not like I delete them. We can still uh, refer to them maybe. At a later date, do let us know your own thoughts. If you want to do your own top tens on the perfect snooker player or anything else we've discussed, snookersinpodcast at mail.com, snookersinpodcast at mail.com. I maybe should have said to you this to you before we start recording, but I thought next week, as the UK Championship is starting, we could sort of look at some of the great moments uh, of that, yeah. that particular tournament. So uh, start thinking about that. But uh, And indeed, anyone listening, what are your great memories of the UK Championship? Um, let us know. But that essentially is that for now. So I hope you enjoy the rest of the uh, the week, the Northern Ireland Open. Of course, we're, we're starting five weeks of snooker on TV. And worth saying, and, you know, I'm not here to uh, I'm not here to advertise Eurosport. But, uh, well, I'll rephrase that. I'm here to advertise Eurosport. Um, we, for the first time, the first week of the UK Championship is going to be televised. So Eurosport are showing the first round of the UK, the last one to eight round, one table afternoon and evening from next Monday. So that's uh well that's good isn't it it's more snooker and it's a chance to see to see the, i guess the whole tournament i mean obviously we can't show every match but it's going to be the big names uh, from from the start so looking forward to that and uh, looking forward already to next week's podcast but that's it for this week so thanks for listening we'll see you very soon sports social podcast network